you're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And welcome back, everyone else, to episode six of Common Descent. Yes, our last episode seems to have gone over really well with the listening populace, and it also seems like people really liked our little mini-episode that we did. Which was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was a cool, just to ramble for 20 minutes about something cool. Yeah, just kind of dive into it. Yeah. So today's topic, and we're going back to overviewing something big, is on the evolution of flight, which is a really exciting subject, a really, really diverse group of things we could talk about with this. Yes. And heavily studied. So this could, we could go into detail on just about every aspect of this subject at length. Uh, There's a whole lot we could talk about here. We, We often say that the topics that we're talking about could be their own entire podcast this subject could be at least four entire podcasts. Yes. <laughs> yes, it could have four separate podcasts, and you'll see yes, why. Yes, it could. And that's just one group of flying animals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this episode is going to be a bit of a flyby, <laughs> if you will. One of us had to say it. And it was me. This one will indeed have to be a bit of a, a, a whirlwind overview. We'll just kind of cover all the hot spots and highlights as we go over just all about flight, who flies, how do they fly, and how did they learn to fly, or how did they get to be flying, because yeah. it's a slightly different answer or lack of answer for each of those, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, depending on which animal you're talking about. Really cool topic. But, of course, as usual, before we start that, it's time for the news. Time for the news! What's uh, news? I'm going to let you start off this news segment, because... I want to end on one of mine since it flows very nicely <laughs> into our subject. My first article, and, and, and you'll notice that our news today is extraordinarily dinosaur heavy, uh, yeah, which is okay. Is. But the first one uh, that I have is not about dinosaur skeletons, but instead about footprints. Footsies. So this is this is actually not news, or at least the site itself is not news, but a, a big survey just came out in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology about a a region famous for dinosaur fossils in Western Australia. Which is rare. Yes, it is. Dinosaur uh, footprints, extremely rare, footprints in general. Mm-hmm. So to have a region that's famous for them. And this is one of the best footprint assemblages anywhere in the world. This is a section of coastline. It's many, many kilometers. Dates back to the early Cretaceous, so 130, 140 million years ago. This particular study concerned a a 25-kilometer section of the coastline. For the last five or six years, a group of researchers from Queensland University and James Cook University, both in Australia, surveyed almost 50 different track sites and identified thousands of different tracks, of which about 150 of them were identifiable as distinct types of trackways. And there are at least 11 and as many as 21 different types of footprints representing different types of footprint 
makers, all dinosaurs. Very cool. Of those footprints, there are meat-eating dinosaurs, duckbill-type dinosaurs, the long-necked sauropods. There are even armored dinosaurs like stegosaurs, which is really interesting. Yeah. And some of them are, you know, uh, a handful of these, at least about a half dozen of them, are new. So, interesting thing that happens with footprints, which are called ichnofossils, right, trace fossils, Mm -hmm. it is almost completely impossible to assign a footprint to a skeleton. Yes. So, like, you wouldn't ever really be able to say, hey, this is a T-Rex footprint. Because mm-hmm. we, it's really hard to say that. So every type of footprint gets its own species name. Call them ichnospecies. In this particular survey, they identified at least six new species, ichnospecies. At least one of them is a really big sauropod, whose footprints are almost as wide across as Will or myself are long. <laughs> Jesus. And there's a particularly large footprint that looks like it's a really big stegosaur as well. And one of the really cool things about this is that early Cretaceous fossils of this age are not really known well from this region, and this gives insights into the ecosystems of that time and includes some dinosaurs like the stegosaurs that weren't expected to be found in the early Cretaceous, that these were holdovers from the late Jurassic, which is pretty cool, and that's information that we wouldn't have had otherwise. It's cool that uh, being able to use trace fossils like this, much like when you're on a hiking trail and you see footprints of some animal that you're never going to see because it can hear you coming a mile away. Mm-hmm. It's 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 cool how these can complete a picture. You know, as you said, we're not going to really be able to match up dinosaur to footprint because this is an impression left by soft tissue mostly. You know, the right. pad of the foot, which you know, if you've ever looked at an elephant skeleton can be completely different <laughs> yeah. from inside to outside of what the bottom of the foot looks like. So these don't tell us exactly, but we can at least get them within the right group. And they can start telling you, did these travel as a group? Did they, you yeah. know, travel in this area? When did they live? You know, it's it's really cool. Just ni- another, not just so much piece of the puzzle, but kind of a puzzle, you know, more to the puzzle from another angle, which yes. is very cool. Yeah. One last cool note about these footprints is that apparently indigenous people in the region have incorporated these footprints into their oral history, Yeah. specifically myths about a being, uh, I don't know if it's a person necessarily or like a creator, I think, who is called the Emu Man because he leaves behind three-toed footprints. (laughs) Yep. Which we know uh, today are the footprints of theropod dinosaurs. Which makes Australia even cooler. <laughs> yes, they have a dinosaur in their creation myth. It's fantastic. <laughs> All right, cool. So on the note of awesome dinosaur stuff and on the note of theropods, mm-hmm. uh, my first news article is one that has kind, has exploded a bit mm-hmm. in recent science news, not as much as uh, our last news article on We Digress, but... This one is about a new species of Tyrannosaur that was discovered recently, and it's called Displetosaurus horneri. Now, I say Tyrannosaur, this is in the group of Tyrannosaurus, but you'll often see articles saying Tyrannosaurus this, Tyrannosaurus, or, you know, being very vague and, once again, alluding to the more famous cousin. 
Yes. This is a separate species. Tyrannosaurs were actually a fairly diverse group. Yeah. This was found in Montana and came from Lake Cretaceous. Uh, it's about 75.2 to 74.4 million years ago that this would have been around. And just kind of painting the picture, it was about 30 feet long, just you know, just shy of it, and just over 7 feet tall. So big enough, but yeah. <laughs> not one of the crazy big ones. And it also had a broad snout and horns behind the eyes. Now, its name, Horneride, does not have, have to do with those horns. It's actually named after Jack Horner. Yes. Very famous paleontologist. Indeed. Yep. Worked on Jurassic Park, all that good stuff. Yeah. Famous before that, though. Yeah. <laughs> and even more famous after it. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, lots of cool stuff with this one. This is, a, once again, a, a, this is a very meaty article. There's a lot we could go into. Uh, new species in and of itself is exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so far as they can tell, it's the youngest and last of its lineage of the Displetosaurus. Yeah. Its closest relative would be Displetosaurus tauros, which was found in Alberta, Canada. The cool thing about that is that, from what they can tell with the close location and evolutionary relationship, it suggests that the tauros basically just morphed and evolved into horneri, is what the writers of the paper, their observations are telling them, which would be anagenesis, which is a form of evolution where instead of branching, one species just changes into another with a single line. It's... I know a form of evolution that is debated by some. It mm-hmm. is not always as supported, but there has been some support for it. And if this turns out to be true, it would be yet another bit of support for it. Yeah. So whether that is what's happening or not, it's interesting. It's cool. Yeah. The skull was really well preserved, and they had an adult and a juvenile, and I think a sub-adult as well. And so they got some really good details in the skulls. And this is where a lot of the articles are coming in, is that... They started to get a lot of observations in what the face of this Tyrannosaur was like, which could give us information of what other Tyrannosaurs would have been like, including the famous one. Yeah. And from what they can tell, the texture of the skull is very similar to that of the skull of a crocodilian, in that it's rough, what we call rugose, mm-hmm. all the way down to the tooth row before it gets very smooth. Which means that they most likely had a very crocodilian face with those tight-to-the-face scales that went almost to the teeth. And the reason this is important is some of you may or may not have heard it or saw it when it came up uh, a little while back, where there was the questioning and debate of whether or not Tyrannosaurus had lips. Yes. And the question was basically asked because dentine on most animals, wears out if exposed to the air, if it's not able to stay damp. Mm-hmm. And they were saying if that was the case with Tyrannosaurus teeth, they should have lips, much like a monitor lizard, or the way the Velociraptors are pictured in the Jurassic Park movies. You know that With the teeth covered by the sort of fleshy, it's not like pouty lips, but just yes. that the teeth aren't they exposed. They had big, full lips. And yes. <laughs> no, it, it caused a great stir. Anytime you talk about changing anything about T-Rex, you're going to get a lot of people up in arms. But it's really not that crazy of an idea. You know, we've already pictured it. There's many reptiles today that have it. This is saying that most likely not. Most likely no lips. It most likely had a very crocodilian face because according to the texture of the bone, if it is working like a crocodilian, there's no room for lips. The scales went right down to the teeth, just like 
on a grok. So that's one evidence against our smiling uh, lippy <laughs> T-Rex. And I've already seen a bunch of people online, other researchers, basically saying that that's not <laughs> a valid interpretation. So this is, once again, not the nail in the coffin. Just exactly. A, a so this is, this is a, a big article partially because they made a lot of observations and either suggestions or drew conclusions that are going to end up being very divisive or just raise a whole lot of discussion. Yeah. So that's the first part. The next part that was very interesting is they saw that along the skull, especially along the lower jaw, uh, snout and area, there's lots of very small holes, which would be for most likely nerve endings, once again, very much like a crocodilian. Yeah. If you look at a crocodilian skull right around the lips and coming up the snout a little bit, there are just hundreds of little small holes that are for little nerve-ending pits that are pressure sensors that the crocodilians use to sense motion in the water. If that is what these are in this tyr tyrannosaur skull, it meant they also had a very sensitive snout, much like a crocodilian. This would be known as the trigeminal nerve, which in lots of animals is used for things like the whiskers on cats, mm -hmm. the... Uh, electroreception and things like platypus, and evidently the whisker pits of dolphins. I did not know that was yep. a thing that was discovered recently until I was reading about this, <laughs> which is very cool. Infrared sensing in pit vipers. It's This nerve has been adapted to many, as the paper quoted, six senses in yeah. <laughs> other animals, where it's those extra sensory, that whether it's texture or actually some sense we do not possess. If they had this sensitive nose, it raises the question of what they were using it for, and they said a couple of very obvious ones like object manipulation. If you have tiny arms, you're using your mouth and snout to move things around, so you need to have a very sensitive, dexterous snout yep. and mouth. They suggested that maybe female tyrannosaurs could have used it to test the temperature of their nests. Yeah, like crocs do. The part that you've probably heard about <laughs> is the suggestion that maybe with sensitive snouts, they were using it during courtship, you know, pre-courtship, pre-mating basically foreplay, or courtship yeah. displays to rub their snouts against each other as a way to bond or as a way to communicate. Tyrannosaur kisses. Yes. It's those <laughs> little, it's like those little stuffed animals with the magnets in their nose. <laughs> yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> but tyrannosaurs. And so it's raised lots of titles like tyrannosaurs show their sensitive side and people <laughs> hearing about, hey, I just heard tyrannosaurs nuzzle each other. Is this true? Uh, I've been asked that exact question by one of my really? friends. Really? So, <laughs> that, it, it's funny that so many things went and ran with that idea because that is literally one sentence in the it's paper. It's one sentence, and it's like the last <laughs> sentence of the paper where they're like, hey, yep. maybe this. All right, well, thank you for reading. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's an interesting paper, uh, and if anything, we now have, are going to, I'm sure, have lots of paleo art of Eskimo kissing <laughs> my favorite thing that this sort of brought to mind with the, they were talking about what they use the sensitive snouts for in modern animals that have mm -hmm. a similar structure and they pointed out that crocodilians that 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 sort of sensitivity is what allows them to use their jaws which are otherwise supremely powerful for really delicate tasks like yes. moving their eggs and moving their young which is really interesting because it brings to mind a big tyrannosaur, you know, snuffling around into its nest to sort of roll its eggs around or picking up its young to move them from place to place. 
which is a really interesting, this notion that in much the same way as a crocodilian, those jaws may have not only been for snapping dinosaur bones, but also for really delicate and dexterous yeah. uh, activities, which is so cool. They said that with the uh, number of the holes and everything, if it, they're interpreting it correctly, it would give them roughly the sensitivity similar to a human fingertip along yes. the snout. So it, this is what this is the same nerve that allows elephants to pick up pennies with their trunk. Yeah. So yeah, it could it could be doing really cool stuff. Yeah, we should mention uh, that this is a paper that published in Scientific Reports by Thomas yes. Carr and a bunch of other people. Yes, indeed. All right. So you said that your second news piece ties nicely into today's topic. So my second news piece ties nicely into last time's topic. Uh, working backwards. Yeah. So episode five was all about the KPG extinction, uh, in meteorite impact, and other things. One of the coolest things that has happened recently, which is to say in the last year, a team of scientists in summer, May, June of 2016, traveled to the Yucatan Peninsula to drill into the Chicxulub crater, which is the crater left behind by the asteroid at the end of the Cretaceous period. And there's been all sorts of interesting findings and papers that have been coming out about this. But in the last couple of weeks, one particular uh, new finding that came out, which was discussed at a conference recently, uh, done by some folks at the Lunar and Planetary Institute, they examined the geologic evidence from drilling down through the layers above and below the actual crater and found evidence that the impact of the asteroid created cracks and fissures that would have filled up with superheated water that may have served as the homes for the first organisms to recolonize the crater site. Oh. So this is the idea that the renovation that this asteroid did at the bottom of this shallow seafloor left this hydrothermal system that once the waters started to cool down might have been home to a bunch of the kind of microorganisms that you see at volcanic hot springs and things, places like that today. And that this system, based on the stratigraphy, it looks like this hydrothermal system probably lasted at least a few hundred thousand years. And these may have been sort of the first colonizers of the actual site after the impact may have filled in this heated water system. Cool. The reason that this, well, one of the reasons that this was being discussed by people from the Lunar and Planetary Institute is because this also has implications for the earliest life on Earth. Mm -hmm. One of the prevailing ideas for where the first life on Earth may have originated is in hydrothermal vents and similar mm -hmm. systems like that. And so this sort of raises some interesting questions about what the relationship may have been between asteroid impacts, which were a lot more common in the early days of the Earth, what kind of areas they may have left behind and how that sort of changed topography may have provided areas for early life to colonize. So it starts off with just some really interesting observations, but there are some really neat implications perhaps for this study as well. 
I really like this one because the idea of life being started by asteroid impacts, you know, the, the impact of distant asteroids and meteors uh, in Earth's early years has been an idea before, typically from the idea that it was brought to Earth somehow from somewhere else. Yeah. Though not a supported or typically <laughs> definitive one. You know, there's, that's more just a cool idea. Yeah. This is a, a much cooler version to me where it's was able to kickstart the right situation. Yeah. <laughs> it created the right habitat. Yeah. Which is so an interesting of link. Evolution, the movie for everyone. It's instead of having <laughs> that situation. <laughs> yeah. It's much more realistic. That's really cool. Yeah. So last news article, and this one flows very nicely into our subject today. We're super professional. Yes, we it's like we planned it. <laughs> It is, we asked them to hold off announcing this research. Uh, <laughs> Don't publish no. yet. It's like, well, wait, wait, what's it about? Could you wait until episode six? <laughs> they were going to publish around episode four. It wouldn't have made any sense at all. It's just unprofessional. This is about a new, uh, one of the most well-preserved bird fossils to date. Many calling it the most well-preserved. So, I mean, this is a ridiculously well-preserved from everything. Bone to soft tissues and feathers all have been preserved to some degree with this fossil. It is a Chinese fossil called Eo Confucius Ornus, which is yeah. a weird name. Uh, <laughs> from the Confucius Ornus forms. Confucius Ornithorms. There you go. Uh, <laughs> it's l- long mouthful names. But these are some of the early birds, and they're famed for the occurrence of the beak in the bird family oh, tree. Okay. So this is where you first see that. Uh, but these are some of the really primitive members, and this was one of the most, or the most primitive and earliest member of this group. Mm-hmm. Now, this was published in National Science Review, and this fossil is from the early Cretaceous, uh, 130 to 120 million years ago, and found in China in the Heu Jing. Uh, I'm probably butchering that. Formation. <laughs> That's about a 130 million year old fossil deposit, and it's the second of these birds of these this specimen to be found. Even though there are many other specimens of the of their group, but of this particular species, it is only the second. And it reveals a whole bunch of cool things. First off, just a well preserved fossil is always cool, but the soft tissues and feathers it preserves reveal a couple of cool things. One of the soft tissues preserved in this fossil are called patagia, or patagiums, which are, we mentioned this back when we were talking about, I can't remember which dinosaur it came up in. Oh, this was, um, we may have right? brought it up because it was found in non-flying dinosaurs. Exactly. They, they had patagia on the hind legs, but it's very common in flying animals. It's very, very common. In fact, we, we are going to go through a whole bunch of patagium vocabulary. I hope everyone's taking notes because... <laughs> All of our flying animals just about have a patagia somewhere. Now, patagium are the folds of skin usually between joints. So this is the flap of skin like between the shoulder and the wrist that covers that inner elbow region mm-hmm. from the bottom of the arm to the waist on many flying animals. Yeah, if you imagine a bat or a pterosaur, like yes. the, the, the membranes... Those are those, called patagia. 
and birds have them as well. You just can't see them because yes. of the feathers. But if you ever eat chicken wings, you'll see it. Mm-hmm. When you eat a wing, you'll see that between the elbow, there is a flap of skin covering that joint that is all stretchy. Yeah. And this is part of what helps form the aerodynamic airfoils that allow birds to fly. And so not only did it preserve these potassiums, but it revealed which ones they had. So there are three main potassiums on the bird wing that are most important. The pre, or the pro-potassium, which is the one in front of the arm that Mm -hmm. I mentioned. The post-potassium, which is from the back of the hand to the ulna, so from the back of the hand down toward the elbow. Mm -hmm. And then the allure potagium, which is the flap of skin that just goes from the first digit, aka the thumb, to the back of the hand, which is a little one. But they lacked that one. So Eo Confucius Ornus did not have that extra little one. So that was something that came along later in the bird line. Even cooler than the fact that these preserved, the tissue structures of the potagiums were preserved well enough for them to see the internal structure to a degree. And the internal structure of potagiums is made up, it is made up of a network of collagen and fibers that give it a form that helps form those aerodynamic shapes, meaning that it could likely fly. It was a powered flyer. So lots of cool stuff about how did bird bird wings form and in what order everything evolved. The feathers also reveal that there was most likely sexual dimorphism among these birds, which is the first time it's been able to be like really confirmed and observed. And that sexual dimorphism ties into what I think is the coolest thing about this specimen. Yeah, (laughs) it's a big deal. So the reason that they are able to know that they have sexual dimorphism, dimorphism is that they know that their specimen, this one, that is being described is a female because the ovaries that were preserved, let that sink in for a moment, yes. <laughs> had developing yolks in it, which is just awesome. So first this tells us that one, it's a female two, yeah. they developed very similar to modern birds, uh, their eggs, which is in a very rapid pace while many other reptiles and close relative archosaurs like crocodilians develop them slower and even later bird lineages developed slower egg-laying processes from what we can see. Interesting. So the Confucius ornithorms had a very modern egg development process. Interesting. The point about finding ovary tissue, which for starters is you know, finding any soft tissue remnants is always really cool, and it happens rarely, but it does happen. Ovaries are a really, really fantastic thing to find. Yeah. But it also, you know, I don't know how many people realize this because of the way we colloquially speak about fossils. When it comes to vertebrate fossils and dinosaurs especially, it is almost impossible to know the sex of an yes. extinct individual. Like, we talk about dinosaurs, oh, she does this and he does this, but 99 times out of 100, way more than that, actually, (laughs) Mm -hmm. we do not know. One of the only good guaranteed ways that we have determined to to, to understand the sex of an extinct animal is to find the actual sex organs. Yes. And this one has it, 
And then, like you said, the feather patterning or the feather uh, the arrangement plunge. was different. Yeah. Based on what we know from some other specimens, which does indicate that the feathers may have been different in males and females. Yeah. So it looked it looked like once again very much like many modern birds that the male that the uh, females lacked the longer tail feathers and were smaller than the males. So the males were a bit bigger and probably had longer tail feathers, which a lot of birds today have mostly for like display and stuff. So very similar there. And then the feathers are preserved well enough that we know a little bit about how they looked, which for this female was a black spotted wings, gray body, and a red throat patch. Interesting. Which once again, I can't describe how cool it is to me that we are not now just saying, you know, cause when we were kids, dinosaurs were basically brown when they were drawn. <laughs> and then people started going, well, hey, what? why can't they have stripes? Why can't they have spots? And they started yeah. adding those in. Now we're able to say, all right, draw it with a red th- throat patch. No, no, because we found it. <laughs> yeah, the one on this fossil. <laughs> yes, on this specific one, we know it was about this size. No, lower. That's fantastic to me. Yeah, that's a whole episode. Oh, yeah. So this one had a lot of stuff to it. Uh, I could only find it on like two different news sites, so hopefully this one will blow up a little bit later on because it's it's a very cool article. That is my last news article, and that closes up our news section. Yes, on to the topic. Go on to our very different topic, subject of how did things fly? Yeah. <laughs> hey, man, what a segue. <laughs> Moving right on in. So this one, we'll go ahead and jump into it. Uh, we're going to try to overview flight as an evolutionary pattern, device, anomaly, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, Flight is a very cool thing, and it's significant for a few reasons. And so the reason it's getting a whole episode is because flight is important. One, it really changes the way an animal can function in its environment. Yeah. Flight is kind of like the cheat code when it comes to nature. (laughs) Flight is always one of those... I have long maintained that flight, in my opinion, is the most ridiculous thing nature ever came up with. Yeah. And the way that I like the thought experiment that I that I use to get that across is imagine if you had never heard of anything that flew mm-hmm. and someone told you that they were they came from a faraway land where there were animals that could jump up really high into the sky, not come down and just move around up there. Yeah. It's insane that that is something that evolved it's like the the book flat world where <laughs> yeah if you're if you're a dot living in a 2d world and someone goes well have you ever heard of a sphere you're gonna go, you're a crazy person <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's it's the same concept of every other animal minus like things that can climb trees which is adding maybe a couple hundred feet to your <laughs> to your dimension but everything else moves in just a Y, an XY grid pattern on the ground. Yeah. Flying has added a Z, which is super normal if you live underwater. But for all terrestrial animals, this is a huge, literally, jump up. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> Much like Superman, flying yes. animals can leap tall buildings in a single bound and also not land. A- and then just keep flying because uh, they have wings. <laughs> So how does it help animals is one of the things, and we'll talk about why it's good and then why 
all animals don't fly? Because that's kind of the the logical question after is, so why isn't yeah. everything flying? Yeah. So some of the big advantages is, one, you can get away from stuff. You know, it just, you can now get off the ground where most predators are and either live up high, nest up high, hide up high. There's plenty of ground foraging birds that still fly because when you hear that noise, running is good. Going away from the noise and the ground in general is better. Yes. <laughs> so flying really just gives you a way out that no other animals have. It also gives you access to things that are out of reach from everyone else. Mm-hmm. There are birds that, for instance, nest on islands that are effectively abandoned, uh, lifeless. They are desolate. No real life has made it there just because it's a bare bed of rock. But they'll fly there to nest because there's nothing there. Yeah. Nothing can get to them, and only other birds can get there. So, Which is another interesting thing about flying is that you can put your nest places. Yes, that nothing can reach or nothing can get to, which is great uh, for your little baby birds. Unless they fall yeah. out, I guess. Yeah. And so it definitely has complications, which we'll get to. But one of the biggest things that flight does past all this is you can just move faster. You can move, you can migrate in a matter of days, what would take other animals months. Yeah. You can cross country so you can forage across miles within an afternoon. You can disperse your species, so a flying species can spread and diversify very quickly yeah. as it crosses a country within just a matter of years. And so flight just, you you now are not going around trees, you're just going over it all and landing somewhere else. And it really changes the way that these animals can move around. We should point out that there is a difference. We're talking about specifically powered flight. Yes. Which is distinct from a lot of animals which glide. Mm-hmm. And gliding has a lot of similar benefits. One of the biggest benefits of gliding that I, I hear come up a lot is that a squirrel, for example, a gliding mm-hmm. squirrel, gliding frog, whatever it is, can make it from one tree to the other without having to go all the way down, all the way across, all the way back up. Yeah, it cuts out the middleman. Animals that have achieved powered flight can do that almost indefinitely. With you can all go from of life. <laughs> mountain to mountain or island to island in, mm-hmm. in ways that nothing else can accomplish. And so it really, and you'll hear lots of, and the, the gliding is a good thing to bring up because lots of the animals that glide, you'll hear as the flying squirrel. You know, yeah. The flying, flying fish. this, the flying that, the flying fish. Flying snakes. Uh, yes. Uh, which is Quetzalcoatl, who was a god. <laughs> um, <laughs> which was actually indeed a, a flying yes. snake. Yes. Uh, we cannot deface him. For fear of bringing about his wrath. Um, uh, so Don't say his name again. If you say it yeah. three times, he'll appear as a guest on the podcast. <laughs> All right. So. Continue. With how awesome flying is, that really brings up the question, why are we not a world of flying animals? Yes. Why would you choose to walk at all. Like, why would any walking animal still be around? And the answer is that flying is super awesome, but it would be the equivalent of using a NASCAR to get to work. <laughs> it's super complicated and super high cost in being able to do that. Both energy-wise, flying is a very high energy and uh, intake activity. You know, that the reason we eat birds is because they have so much muscle because they need 
every little bit of that to get off the ground. Yeah. Like, if you ever watch this a slow motion of, like, a pigeon taking off, it's crazy. They literally are standing there, and then they, like, jump their body length up into the air, and then immediately start flapping, like, five times within the... It's like... There's, like, four or five flaps within the first second yeah. for them to be able to get... It's crazy. Because for birds, your legs and arms both need to be powerful enough to not only lift your own weight, but propel your own body weight. To ignore gravity. Yep. <laughs> and so it's very high cost. It also requires a very specialized body. Yes. You know, this is one of the biggest things that if you ever, you know, go to sci-fi or fantasy movies with certain types of biologists, of course, <laughs> neither of which are on this podcast. Of course not. <laughs> Pretentious people, really. Yes. And you watch something with a big flying monster. That is one of the biggest things people talk about is that there's no way that could fly. Its wings need to be like 10 times the size. Its body's way too <laughs> heavy. Flying is a really complicated a set of equations on you have to have a certain wingspan. You can only weigh so much, you know, according to how big you are. And you have to then also be aerodynamic. So you can't be a flying brick. You have to be sleek. And yeah. that means a very, you know, you have to give up certain things. You have to develop all of that. And then the weight in and of itself is another category of complications where you can't, you can't be a heavy hitter and also fly. You yeah. know, you have to give up a lot of that toughness, which means injury is now a very real possibility of just if you tri if a stork trips that could be a broken leg like right one yeah. little trip and that leg's going to snap like a twig cuz it's so thin and if that stork quote unquote trips in flight yeah that's i'm it is very very dangerous to crash mhm mm like if you're running across the plains and you trip that's dangerous if you're yeah. flying and you make a mistake yeah this is high risk high reward sort of lifestyle and I think one of the best examples to point at the, the the fact that flying is so costly and so difficult is that if you, as we discussed a couple episodes ago, if you give a flying species even a glimmer of a chance, it will lose flight. Yeah. Birds have lost flight over and over and over again uh, because it's, if you don't have to do it, yeah, it really ends up being beneficial in a lot of cases to give it up. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that I think is really important to mention, and we'll get into this more, I, I suppose, when we talk about the evolution of flight. Absolutely. But all of those sort of ingredients that you need to achieve flight have to evolve. And evolution doesn't work with a plan in mind, which means all of these ingredients have to come together for various reasons in the right animal, mm -hmm. which means evolving a body that is capable of flight requires many, many steps to get there and the right sort of selective pressure and the right sort of habitat. So not only is it difficult to do, it's just statistically less likely to happen. Yes. On the note of that uh, statistical small window... Only four groups of animals have ever developed flight. And yes. with most of them, it seems, it, for the most part, it developed one time and diversified like crazy. Yes, so four times. Four times ever. In almost a billion years of vertebrate life. 
I'm sorry, of animal life. I'm leaving out, I'm showing my bias. Yeah. Animal life. In almost has... a billion years of important life. Uh... <laughs> Take that, microbiologists. <laughs> uh, they're the ones that can weaponize stuff, so we should... <laughs> we, should... we should be nice to them. Sharks with laser beams, you say. <laughs> Here's a tiny vial. <laughs> you just just sniff this. What does it smell like to you? <laughs> Smallpox, you say. Um, so four times. So four times, and each of those have become sup- crazily successful. These four groups are birds, bats, pterosaurs, and insects working backwards from when they developed it. Yes. And these all are some of the most successful groups of animals, even the pterosaurs, which are completely extinct. They went extinct right alongside, you know, a lot of other stuff at the KPG boundary. But during their time, they had a nearly 145 million years of time on the earth. So they were by no means just like a blip. They were around for a while. They diversified. We talked about in one news article, they got really big, and they had yeah. really small ones, so they did a lot. Birds, bats, and insects are three of the most successful groups on the planet today. Yeah. Bats are second most diverse mammals, with mm-hmm. somewhere in the vicinity of a thousand species. Yep. Birds are the most diverse terrestrial vertebrates, with somewhere yes. in the vicinity of 10,000 species. Yeah. And insects make up the majority of life on the on land. There are yeah. like a million, and I'm not saying like a million as a big number that I'm pulling off the top of my head. There are approximately a million living insect species, and almost all of them fly. When I, I looked up to try to get just rough numbers, and I'm sure these have changed since the time that this was, you know, I got the where I got these estimates from. Uh, just because this sort of stuff varies, but it said there's at least three million species in the four majus, most species orders of insect, which are all four flighted. <laughs> and the estimates range between just under three to just under eight million species, with an average around five and a half million. <laughs> so crazy amounts. Yeah, something about flight is. It's difficult to do, it's difficult to get there, but once you achieve that, all four groups explode into diversity. Because you've opened up an entire new niche. It's very much like when life first moved onto land. Yeah. Now there's a million new niches for you to to, to explore, and so natural selection is going to experiment like crazy. Same thing happens with flight. It's like when eyes first developed in early life forms... There was a yeah. huge amount of speciation because now it goes, oh, wait, I can see what I'm eating. Now I can chase it. <laughs> Do and all sorts of stuff. This got yeah, crazy. Now, with each of these, one of the cool things is they each discovered a different way to fly. Mm-hmm. And some of them are pretty straightforward. We all know that birds use feathers. We mentioned the potagiums, as well as things like having hollow bones and, you know, structures for flying Similar with all of them is a very keeled chest to hold all of that muscle that is needing for flapping. Yes. And so that's with all three of the vertebrates, the birds, the bats, and the pterosaurs all have that very specialized chest. With each one, though, they had slightly different 
methods, the feathers with the birds, obviously, and then both bats and pterosaurs went with just potassium flight, meaning that they just had those flats of skin, same thing you think of when you think of a bat wing, dragon wings, all of those classic leathery wings. Yeah, and all three of those vertebrate groups, unlike dragon wings, yes. are just the front arms. Mm-hmm. So it's not that you've come up with a new limb. You have, and that's another interesting point about the pros and cons of flight. You have to give up a lot yeah. of your arm functionality to allow it to become this flying tool. Yeah. And it's it's interesting how each one did it. Because birds, basically their hand shrunk. It became very reduced. The bones became much more simplified to where it is now just kind of a core for all those feathers to grow off from. Bats, as you can see very clearly, just stretched their hands out. They got, Their fingers got long and skinny. Oh, it's so cool looking. Uh, and we'll get into it because they, even got, they used to be even cooler. But they now have patagiums, same ones. They have the propatagium that goes in front, but then they have what are called dactyl patagiums that are the Ooh. ones in between each digit. Cool. And then the palgeopatagium, which is from the last digit to the back legs, and then the europatagium that goes between the legs and the tail. So they're much more like a glove, like a kite, where it is going all the way around. And the cool thing about that is they are much slower than birds, but much more accurate. Like, if you watch bats fly, they can make very tight turns. They're much more like a helicopter, even though they can't hover. But they are flying very slow, but can turn on a dime and catch and eat on the wing. You know, so they will catch insects and then consume the insect without ever landing. (laughs) And so they're very dexterous in the air, which is very cool. Pterosaurs also use these patagiums, and they have... Many of the similar ones, the pro one, the euro one between the legs. Uh, But then they have the brachiopatagium, which is just the bulk of the wing, because their wing, instead of forming between the fingers, they stretched out their one main finger, which is the fourth digit, and that formed the the support for the majority of the wing. Yeah. Essentially, if if your pinky just stretched way longer than your body and held Mm -hmm. up this uh, wing membrane. And which so, is cool because it leaves their hand. They still have a hand on top of that. Yeah. Instead of just having the one thumb claw. Which was an interesting part of pterosaur lifestyle because unlike birds and bats largely, pterosaurs were quadrupeds. Yeah. When pterosaurs landed, they walked on all fours. Mm-hmm. Whereas a bird cannot do that. A bird's yeah. wing does not allow it to do that. And some bats can, just depending on which bat, depends on how well they can. Yeah. The closest you get is a vampire bat, which can actually, like, hop around and stuff because they hunt on the ground. Yeah, they do. You can find videos of them, like, hunting, The vampire stalks its prey. Cows and pigs, and they're just bouncing around on the ground behind them. It hops behind their ankles and nibbles at their toes. (laughs) Yeah. So... All of them found different ways and moved in different ways. And in, the differences also go on and on. Once again, each could have a list and whole episode or podcast done about them on how they were flying. 
insects yeah. are the one weird one because they're the one invertebrate. So their yeah. wings are actually extra limbs, and yeah. they are four. <laughs> we'll take a second here. I just want to repeat that last sentence. Insects evolved extra limbs to fly. Yeah. They already had six. Not enough for them. Yeah. No, that's six. Why stop there? Yeah. <laughs> well, Once you get going. past four, I mean, sky's the limit. Um, <laughs> Apparently. So insects have two pairs of wings. Now, some fly with the wings connected and some fly with them separate. And this is separated by direct and indirect flight. Mm-hmm. Uh, direct flight being where the muscles on the inside of the insect's body connect to the wings and flap them directly. This would be yeah. like dragonflies, mayflies. And on those, the wings are separated. So you get that nice helicopter alternating movement with dragonflies, but they can't fold their wings. So they tend to have that right. very stuck out from outside of them. The majority of other insects, basically everyone else, have indirect flight, which is even crazier. Because yes. instead, they have those four wings have now connected to form basically two wings or function like a beetle where one wing has become a wing cover. And, you know, why not just turn one of your wings into armor? Man. Uh, (laughs) Some insects have also lost some of their wings. Flies are named for that, where they, their second pair essentially, or one of the pairs has been reduced to these little nubbins and they're only using two. Equalizers, like those little nubbins act to keep (laughs) them balanced while they, it's really crazy when you get into how insects fly in the physics. I'm sure you've yeah. heard, you know, everyone has heard about how bees shouldn't be able to fly when looked at it from an engineering standpoint, and that there's other insects where there's questions <laughs> on how exactly are you staying up there. Some some flight expert out there is really angry at you because you said that. I know, right? I've heard people get really, because apparently uh, that's like... <laughs> I, I've heard that it's not as cut and dry as it's always made out to be. Yeah. But I've also heard that there's other insects where we're not sure exactly how they maneuver the way they do. To where yeah. it's like, I don't know how you're managing <laughs> this. Like those little daily bobs on flies, I'm pretty sure were fairly recent. Not like within the last few years, but like last few decades. Discovery, like the fact that that was how they, that's why flies are able to like zoom up and land upside down on your ceiling. Like you're used to it because a fly does that. But that like be a helicopter pilot flipping the helicopter over and landing upside like. It's crazy. Yeah. Insect, we, we're going to spend most of our time talking probably about the vertebrates. Yes. But p- don't let that fool you into thinking that insects are not by far the most accomplished, diverse, successful, and impressive flyers. Yeah. By a, a huge, huge margin. Crazy margin. And it makes sense because they did it first and they've had Way the most first. time to perfect it. <laughs> they accomplished it like 200 million years before anybody else. Before we move on, just to mention what indirect flight actually is, this is where the muscles inside the insect's body, instead of flapping the wings, just flex the body cavity so that it makes the wings flap. Yes. So this is like when you breathe and your chest expands, but if that also made you raise your arms. (laughs) (laughs) The other really ridiculous thing about insect flight is that some insects who flap their wings slowly flap them essentially like birds do, which would essentially be like a person. You flap your arms. Yeah. And it's just flap, 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 flap. But with insects, a lot of insects have wing beats that are hundreds of beats per second 
and that is too fast for nerves to recharge. Mm-hmm. So you, the insect's not thinking about every flap. Essentially, it's like a breaker switch. Yeah. And they turn on flapping, <laughs> or they turn it off. Yes. And it's just these really rapidly moving muscles that the nerve, all the nerve does is say, start, stop. Yeah. And then they tilt the body and they, they shift the direction of the wings to make the, to, to accomplish maneuverability in the air. It's really crazy. Uh, one of the other interesting differences between them, when we think about birds flying, uh, this is especially an interesting difference between birds and pterosaurs. Birds, all the feathers that they have on their wings gives them a lot of individual control over the wing shape. Mm-hmm. So if you ever look at an airplane, and somebody out there, by the way, is being semantic and saying, actually, five groups of animals have learned how to fly. You say, yes, we did it too, but we cheated. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, no, no. Machines <laughs> learned how to fly. <laughs> Machines are evolving yes. <laughs> the ability to fly. It is just a symbiotic relationship with humans. But if you watch an airplane, there are moving parts on an airplane's wing that allows it to change the shape. And birds can accomplish this to a degree with their feathers. Pterosaurs and insects, and bats, I'm not, uh, I'm not really sure, but I know pterosaurs and insects, their wings are, to a degree, constructed so that when they meet air resistance, their shape changes to make them aerodynamic. Mm-hmm. So it's like if you took a piece of paper and you flapped it through the air, it buckles back and forth as the wing, as the sort of the wind goes over it. Insects and pterosaurs aren't able to actively change the shape of their wings all that much, but just the act of moving through the air helps them to maintain an aerodynamic shape. It's like flight autocorrect. Yeah, which is really cool, especially for insects, because they don't have, for the most part, you can't have big muscles running through those wings. Mm -mm. So you couldn't really be able to change the shape all that much. You have to have this sort of passive passive cambering, uh, I believe is what it's called. Insect wings are basically just that the same chitinous material their body's made of. It's a cuticle with veins flowing through it for when they are first, you know, pumping the wings out after hatching or metamorphosizing. Yeah. After that, it's basically just this set thing. You know, some can fold them. You know, beetles can fold theirs up under their wing case, but, you know, they're not going to do that, like, nice stretching things that birds do. It's... yeah either open or closed. We've talked about how they fly. We've talked about how it's different, what's unique. Now, how did each one evolve? And with birds, there's a lot to go over with that one. And we're not going to do it all here because that will definitely be its own episode someday because bird evolution in general, but definitely flight evolution in bird is a majorly studied Many parts of it are debated, and it is a huge topic to cover. But generally, birds first appear mid-late Jurassic, about 160 million years ago. Mm-hmm. They derive from the you know groups of dinosaurs within theropods, those two-legged predatory dinosaurs. First bird was classically, you typically will hear Archaeopteryx, but recent uh, research has put uh, Aeornis ziu, or Zui, I'm not sure, it's a Chinese species mm-hmm. discovered not too long ago, which is now the most basal bird. Interesting. I know there was also uh, Shoutingia was discovered not too long ago. That which was is also listed. 
there's kind of like a little like three or four specimen club of the most basal birds that I'm sure will switch places as people discover new things about each one. But very early birds, you know, many of them shared many features with their dinosaur cousins of teeth, longer tails, claws on the wings, stuff like that. The origin of flight is pretty well documented on how they developed wings. The reasoning for why they developed wings is kind of one of the big questions. And in what direction? And by that I mean there's usually two main groups of thought. There are others, but it is either the cursorial or arboreal track of evolution, which you'll typically hear as the ground up or tree down. <laughs> yeah, this is a, it's an interesting point that um, I think a lot of people, there's been a lot of discussion in the past yeah. of where did, why do they have feathers, why do they have wings, this and that. And those, the evolution of bird features, hollow bones, long powerful arms, feathers, is actually very well documented. Yeah. And each of those features comes about for various different reasons, and we see them being applied to various different uses in extinct organisms. The big question is, once you had those features, right, you have an animal that uses its super powerful arms for snatching at prey, and it uses its feathers for display or for keeping warm or whatever, what was the impetus to then start selecting for aerial maneuverability and aerodynamics, and why did you start to fly? And the two, the, the, you know, the arboreal is probably the most obvious one that comes to mind of it. it these were animals that climbed trees, lived in trees, and then would glide tree to tree or use their wings to help move branch to branch. Mm-hmm. And flapping was eventually introduced that helped them glide further and eventually fly all together. Yeah, it's a really it's a really obvious step from parachuting to gliding to flying. And so that's that's definitely one of those possibilities. The cursorial is more the idea that they were using the wings to balance, you know, while they were running to keep you know, while running at high speeds, they would basically put those out to help them stabilize. They could mm-hmm. also flap while running to either help them climb up trees or run up inclines, things like that, of flapping to help them move forward yeah. and basically moving the opposite direction and eventually flying up the tree instead of running and flapping up the tree. Yeah, It's one of the most striking images that there's been a lot of studies in this what's called wing-assisted incline running Mm -hmm. and this is something that a lot of birds especially birds that don't fly very much and baby birds whose wings aren't developed yet will run up a steep slope and flap their wings to help them run up there uh, at, at inclines that other animals might not be able to do without that aerodynamic support it's going to be a funny image and i'm sure Someone out there who absolutely loves the idea of a feathered flossoraptor is going to groan when I say this. But think of how a chicken moves around. Yeah. When you watch a chicken, like, try to get up something, it starts flapping and looks like it's out of control, but gets up there. Yeah. That sort of idea. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we should point out that birds are not the only dinosaurs that had wings. Yes. Wings, 
and, and all these, you know, hollow bones, feathers, all the bird type things are actually really widespread across mm-hmm. this corner of the dinosaur family tree. We know that dinosaurs, there is direct evidence that some dinosaurs used their long feathery arms to cover their eggs. Mm-hmm. It is almost certain that some of them were using the long wing feathers for display. Yeah. Uh, it's been suggested, like Will was saying, that they're using them to help maneuver or to help balance. Like, they had evolved wings before wings mm-hmm. were actually really common. And so this only once, probably only once, maybe a couple times, yeah. that's a little <laughs> bit ambiguous, did they sort of get co-opted for aerodynamics. There is at least one example of gliding in, well, two, I guess, of gliding in non-bird dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. What's always really interesting to me about the trees down, ground up discussion is that trees down sounds so obvious that ground up sounds stupid. Yes. At first glance, but the whole reason that ground up gained a lot of popularity is because there is really very little evidence for arboreal, which is to say tree-dwelling, dinosaurs. Yeah, the dinosaurs started on the ground, so... If 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 birds were gliders out of trees before they started flying, we have not seen any really solid evidence of it in the fossil record. Yeah, so it's it's one of those it's one of those cool things where just because an answer seems obvious doesn't mean it's right. It's one of the few times where Occam's razor will betray you. Know, betray you. Yeah. So that's that is as much as we're really going to hit on with birds because once again yeah. we could go in and into it on how did all the features develop. One more thing, actually, real quick Absolutely. about birds, and this is, I want to mention this because it separates them from the other animals. We mentioned before that birds have those really powerful legs for jumping into the air. Mm-hmm. That's something they have because they inherited it from a long, long legacy of ground-running animals. Awesome ground predators. Which is another really big support for this notion that they started on the ground and took off from there that they had these crazy beefy legs Mm -hmm. for jumping, possibly for climbing, definitely for running, that really are are something very unique to that line of of reptilian life. Yeah, once again, this is why the drumstick is such a popular piece of the bird, because there's a lot of muscle there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the evolution of bird, like their ancestors and their close cousins, is actually really well understood but the, the that short time span in which they transitioned from the ground to the air is really difficult to narrow to, to 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 sort of pin down because like we discussed before and there was actually a study that came out just a couple of years ago that showed that the evolution of the different bird traits was slow and gradual until they all came together and they started flying mm-hmm. at which point birds erupted in diversity yeah so when you start flying, you explode in diversity, and that is a lot of evolution in a very short amount of time, which doesn't leave a lot in the fossil record for us to to kind of narrow down, mm-hmm. which is why the other three groups are na- are crammed into what's left of this podcast episode. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and there's the other reason for the, the other three being seemingly left till the end is they are in a very, very opposite situation of birds whereas in birds we have an actually really good view of how birds develop from dinosaurs you know there there's of course gaps 
and there's definitely issues with some not fossilizing well because once again as we mentioned earlier when you're a flyer you're delicate so you don't always preserve well but we have a decent record when it comes to birds with bats pterosaurs and insects we don't we do not just have a poor record we don't have a record of how they develop flight (laughs) no we don't we we have the earliest fossils of each of those being a fully flighted individual and then before that there not being anything that looks like them and so we don't even know which group of mammals bats really definitely came from. <laughs> no, we don't. Because we, we mentioned this in the snake episode, flying animals are so weird. Mm-hmm. They've changed so much that it's really difficult to identify, to, to compare them to other groups of life and identify yeah. exactly where their relations lie. Pterosaurs have the same issues. And so all three of these groups, we really have no good clues as to how they develop flight. Now, we can draw some conclusions mm-hmm. from looking at how they are flying and kind of work backwards into seeing maybe how that would have developed, but we don't have any transition specimens, you know, in transitional species of a gliding bat or a, yeah. you know, tree-climbing pterosaur. We got... A early pterosaur, an early bat, and an early in- flying insect. Yep. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> so on these, there's still interesting stuff. The early specimens are still cool. Oh, yeah. Once again, though, especially with bats and pterosaurs, fossil record for them is really, really rough because these were these were basically animals made out of a series of twigs <laughs> being held together. Like, made out of twigs that are actually just rolled up pieces of paper. Yes, <laughs> like, crazy delicate. These are these animals. If you ever get a chance to look at a bat skeleton and look at the ulna of a of a bat arm, <laughs> yeah, it's like a, it's toothpick. a toothpick. It is. It is a toothpick. That's all it is. <laughs> it's it's crazy. So these, when they fossilize, don't usually fossilize well, and then you know past that, don't fossilize very often. Mm-hmm. But as far as bats. They show up early Eocene, about 52 million years ago. The earliest one is fully flighted, and it looks, unfortunate, like, unfortunately in the fact that it doesn't give us much answers past it, looks very similar to the modern microbats, which are the little yeah. ones that fly around catching bugs. There's the microbats and the, the large fruiting bats are the two main groups of modern uh, bats. It looks basically like a little bat. It, it, there's not much sticking out. There's a few differences. And so the two big ones is, as far as they can tell, with this, this is, uh, let's see if I can pronounce this one right. It's a fossil from Wyoming, mm-hmm. and it's Onychoncertus finii. Onychonicterus. Onychonicterus. That sounds a lot better. <laughs> I like that one better. We'll go with that one. Like I said, my scientist superpower. Yep. Onychonicterus. Taxonomic names. Was a space you know, it's uh, funny because I've thought about it in the past of, like, if we get scientific names wrong mm-hmm. to just edit it out. Yeah. But I get the feeling that it must be so refreshing and encouraging for people to hear us get them wrong. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Even absolutely. though we made a career out of it. Oh, yeah. It's by no means, no one be mistaken, Latin words are hard <laughs> no matter <laughs> no matter what. <laughs> they're, mostly they're hard because no one speaks that language. There's a reason it's dead. It up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so this was a specimen about 52 million years ago. It's one of the oldest, and it 
is a fairly well-preserved specimen, and one of the big debates with bat evolution was, did echolocation or flight evolve first? Because with many, especially the microbats, many flying bats, echolocation is a key part of how they maneuver while flying. Yeah. That's how they map their environment as they move through it, especially for all those that live in caves, because how else are you going to navigate a perpetual environment of perpetual darkness? Yep. Yeah. There's you have sound and like psychic abilities, and that second one doesn't <laughs> exist in real world. So yeah, we bats can't. We have to go with sound. and ESP. Yes, fun fact. <laughs> True facts about bats. That that'll be our next episode is psychic creatures and why I didn't know they exist. Um, <laughs> gonna be a short, short episode. <laughs> they wipe your memory every time you see them. It's really <laughs> inconvenient to study them. Now you sound like a Bigfoot person. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to go squatching. It's going to be great. I'm going to use all the terminology. Uh, bat squatch. So he, that's been one of the big debates is which came first, which you know, which kind of pushed which to develop. Did they gain echolocation and flight come after, or did they start flying? And then echolocation was a obvious answer to how to fly in caves. Mm-hmm. This one has very well-formed uh, wings. And from what they can see with the skull, no signs of echolocation. The inner ear and everything doesn't have any of those features, so most likely early bats were not echolocating, which modern fruit bats do not. So this is not a crazy concept, but they started flying first, according to this. And it's worth pointing out that birds don't echolocate either. Yes, except for the ones that click. I can't remember those. (laughs) That one, there was one cave cave dwelling birds. Yeah. Uh, but you hear people when they talk about flight a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this comes up especially in sort of general conversation. This notion that you know bats don't have feathers, but they manage it. Mm-hmm. You know that there's a bunch of different ways to approach this problem and to succeed at it. Yes. Now, coolest thing about this early bat and many others is that it was a little bit different, and this gives us some clues as to how they might have developed flight. First off, it has shorter arms, longer de- legs, and the coolest part, all five digits of the wings still had claws. Ooh. Which is visually fantastic. Terrifying. <laughs> but with that setup, this leans toward a image of a creature that was climbing with yeah. longer back legs and still able to grip with the wings and then gliding or at least flying from those higher places, which supports a, to use our previous terminology, a tree down form yeah. of evolution with the bats, where they are starting by either climbing up the trees and then gliding around and making a mixture of climbing and gliding or, you know, limited flapping to mm-hmm. move around and then eventually developing full flight. Yeah, it's interesting because the same sort of patagia that you see in these flying animals also evolve in animals that parachute just to, d- mm-hmm. to slow their fall or things like gliding squirrels yeah and that sort of step by step is easy to see as a, a trajectory mm-hmm. it's also supported by the fact like you said we don't really know wh- where bats fall in the mammal family tree yes but a lot of the time studies put them nearby things like rodents or primates mm-hmm. which is another bit of support for this idea that they may have descended from tree climbing ancestry. Yes. Which really, and and, you know, there are plenty of gliders across the mammal family tree. 
Absolutely. It's and some really, really cool ones. Like there are some gliders that have specialized in just gliding. Like they haven't developed a form of flapping, but there are supreme gliders. So it's very oh, likely yeah. one of those just took it that step further. And that's another real quick point because this is a whole other episode, I'm sure. Yeah. Gliding isn't necessarily a step toward flying. Yes. There are tons of animals that are gliders that do just fine without having to give up all of that stuff we talked about before and make a transition into flying. Most gliding animals probably never make, probably never go, you know, anything beyond gliding because gliding is all that they need. If you can be a squirrel that just has a lot of extra skin, that's, that's a very little cost for a whole new way of getting around. Yeah. So that's generally with bats. Like I said, these last few are going to be brief because <laughs> Real quick. I'm giving you almost everything. With birds, we gave you the very like briefest glimpse because there's too much. Here, I'm giving you most of what I could find without getting into the really nitty-gritty details of... We could always do an entire episode oh, yeah. devoted to each of these groups, and we probably will at some point. Yeah, because bat evolution is still fascinating on when did they develop echolocation, and how did it change, you know, how did bats change as they went along? You know, just because we don't know how they started flying doesn't mean that they didn't do cool stuff later. Yeah. On to pterosaurs, which show up toward uh, late Cri Triassic and stick around to the end of the Cretaceous, so about... 228 million years to 66 million years ago. Mm -hmm. The earliest fossils, once again, are fully flighted. And these are, once again, very delicate. And if I remember, if I believe uh, I'm remembering right, most fossils are found, you know, shoreline fossil deposits and aquatic where they fell into water and were able to be preserved. Yeah, that, that's very common for pterosaurs. One of the big reasons why bats and pterosaurs, but especially bats, don't fossilize well, is they're terrestrial. So they weren't often falling in places where they were going to fossilize well. They were usually falling on the forest floor where things eat you when you die. <laughs> so there's a lot going against fossilizing these animals. And then, like we mentioned in our mini-episode, that notion that the earlier you are in the history of a group, the fewer, spe the fewer individuals there were to begin with. Yes. So trying to find the earliest representatives, there's a there's a whole list of things working against the discovery of these earliest yeah. members. Uh, now, much like with the bats, it's not quite known where pterosaurs fit in. They're either evolved from basal archosauromorphs or basal uh, ornith uh, ornithodires. The ornithodires and the uh, which the other name that's also given to that at times is the uh, Ava metatarsali. Yeah. Dinosaurs plus pterosaurs. Yes. So it, they were either right there alongside dinosaurs or slightly off somewhere else. It's hard to know when you don't have the thing they started from. Now, one of the cool things is some of the evidence, if they did evolve alongside that or close to that group of dinosaurs, is that early members of that dinosaur group and the ancestors to that dinosaur group were, you know, little bipedal terrestrial animals. Yeah. And one of the big debates for a long time with pterosaurs in general was how they moved around. Now, we mentioned earlier that now we have good evidence for the fact that they walked on all fours. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're fairly capable at it. Earlier back, you know, I had kids' books from when I was younger where they were still debating, did they walk on all fours and walk on two legs and just tuck their wings up? Yeah. <laughs> so that was a question that we still didn't quite know until recently. But then on top of that question, we don't know whether they evolved bipedally or quadrupedally. Yeah. And so that's been a big debate. If they evolved, though, from those ornithodires uh, or basal ancestors of the ornithodires, it most likely is that they were bipedal and moved to a quadrupedal stance since they, those ancestors were mostly bipedal. Yeah, and if they evolved from those bipedal running ancestors, they may have had a similar ground-up trajectory mm-hmm. as birds may have had, as yeah. we discussed. Now, that, and once again, there's lots of more diesel, but that's about as much as I, I have for like the basic overviews. If we get into much <laughs> more when it comes to pterosaurs, you start getting into the really, really nitty-gritty of yeah. studying the the cool details, but very technical ones. Uh, pterosaurs are... Very mysterious. Yeah. Which is cool. They're very cool animals, but they just, they kind of pop up. Yeah. They do fantastically, though, for a long, long time. One really interesting thing that I I always like to bring up with pterosaurs, in terms of comparing the evolution of one group to the other, I mentioned before that birds have those big, beefy back legs that Mm -hmm. they use. You know, flying animals don't fly themselves into the air. Yes. They jump and then flap. Birds can do that with their back legs because they've got those big, beefy theropod legs. Mm-hmm. Terra- uh, pterosaurs can't do that. Mm-mm. Pterosaur hind legs are not very big and strong. Kind of puny. Which has led to this really fascinating interpretation of how pterosaurs took off. For a long time, there was this suggestion that they had to jump off of cliffs yeah. in order to catch air. That they were only quiffed cliff-dwelling species that either used updrafts or dove yep. to get that speed and power to fly. And you see that a lot with bats, where bats tend to hang out in high places and then yeah, take drop off like bomb the ears. Yep. But there has been some modeling that has shown that pterosaurs were most likely capable of taking off with their arms. Doing super push-ups. Super push-ups, where they just do a big heave... And throw themselves into the air with their arms instead of with their legs. I will send, we'll put this in the, the blog post because I, I have one of the videos of this yes. model. One of the most fascinating points that this brings up is that this is really intuitive because it means that all the muscle that you need in this animal is in the arms. Yeah. The same muscles that you're using to fly are also the launching muscles. Whereas birds have all this extra weight in the back, Mm -hmm. which could potentially, this is a whole other discussion, but I've heard it suggested that that might be one of the reasons why pterosaurs were able to get so much bigger than birds have been. It was all centralized. Yeah. No matter how powerful a bird's wings are, they also have to carry its giant legs. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas with a pterosaur, and there are some bats like the vampire bats that yeah. we mentioned before, also take off this way, where they, yeah, they push do off mice, massive push with the front limbs and a little bit of aid of the back. Yep. So really cool, different uh, body plan mm-hmm. that that makes for a very different uh, uh, method of flying. And it makes sense uh, when your wing design, you know, with a bird, is you've basically reduced your front limbs and added features onto them 
a pterosaur's front limbs have to be, due to the design, the same length as their wingspan. So when you have big yeah. pterosaurs, your your limb has to be six feet long, <laughs> yeah, down to the tip. So you can't help but focus energy on those long limbs. Because if you then put anything on the back feet, you're going to have this thing that has six foot front arms, you know, three foot back legs, and just <laughs> this giant spindly crazy thing that's having to launch itself up into the air. Yeah. it's They're really cool animals. You get some really crazy, uh, pterosaurs get really crazy with the head crests. Uh, oh, yeah. so There's a pterosaur episode in the future. Oh, yeah. So they do cool stuff. Insects being our final and the first to fly. Once again, same category in that they do not really have an answer, but they actually have a few more hypotheses hinging on the verge of theory as to what the possible origins could have been by looking at earlier insects and the features they had, because now at least you're dealing with you know an invertebrate group Insectia, which is a very broad group, but you can still at least look at features across them and mm-hmm. see that they're body plans. Now, insects first uh, learned to fly about 350 million years ago is when the first winged insect was found. And it, if you look up a picture, it just looks like a really big cockroach. Like it's, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, pre- it's pretty much just a flying insect. Yeah, there are a handful, much like the other groups, there's a handful of insects that were already flying. Like, there was already a little bit of a diversity of insects by the Carboniferous. So, and this is a really interesting note, that insects seem to have taken to the air around the same time that vertebrates took to the land. <laughs> they were way ahead of us. <laughs> They're like, oh, that's cute. <laughs> Look at them crawling out of the water. You're learning to walk? All right, well, I'm going to be up here. I I like to imagine that there must be a story somewhere of the first fish who just generations and generations spent, one of these days I'm going to get up on land and eat that bug. We've been watching these bugs. All we have to do is evolve the right features. We're going to get up there. And they finally he make finally it. He finally gets out. He's like, come here, you <laughs> son of a... <laughs> and it's gone. No! <laughs> but I had legs now. It's not fair. I had legs now. Uh, oh, man. I, I laughed so hard at that. I don't know if it'll be picked up. <laughs> uh, so that's just confirmation that I am super duper funny. You are uh, very funny. <laughs> all right. So, insect flight hypotheses. There are three... Uh, main ideas as to how they came about. Three main schools of thought or possibilities. There's the paranodal hypothesis, the epicoxal hypothesis, and the indite or excite hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And they each deal with a different body part, basically, as to what might have been the origin. So, unlike with the others where we're trying to decide... What drove you to getting into the air? With insects, we're going, all right, which part of you <laughs> became the wings? Was it a leg, a gill, or some flaps on your back? Yes. Yeah. It's one of those, as far as we can tell. Because the others, it's just, what made you start flapping your arms? Yeah. It's pretty straightforward. 
<laughs> where did those come from? Yeah, what <laughs> what are those? Where did you get where, them? Where did you get that? Why? <laughs> so the paranodal is the idea uh, many insects a day and some fossil ones have these kind of lobes on their thorax and some on their abdomen. And it's just these kind of flaps, these flat lobes that might have in past insects, but in some modern ones are used as parachutes while they fall off of branches or stuff, they'll use yeah. those to kind of right themselves so that they land feet down and can start scurrying. Classic trees down. Exactly. It's that. Or I guess in the case of insects, it could be grass down because, yeah. you know, you're super tiny. Absolutely. Except grass wouldn't have been around yet by then, so fern down. This is a good point. Fern down. <laughs> <laughs> or other animal down. <laughs> These were insects that were Thigh jumping down. off of... Thigh down. Tetrapods. <laughs> so these little flaps. Now the the issue with this one, the biggest issue here is it's very easy to think. All right, you're parachuting. Eventually, you're gliding. Eventually, you're flapping. Mm -hmm. But with this one, the main issue is that if these were just flaps on the body, at some point they had to develop musculature to make them yeah. flap, which is one of the issues there. The next one answers part of that. So. Many insects today, the larval states of things like mayflies and you know the nymphs of certain insects have external gills, mm -hmm. and on some of them they are movable. They are they are actually musculature. They can move those and you know articulate them. And the idea is that these may have started as either paddles or sails or something of the sort for while moving yeah. in water to maneuver with these large external gills that then eventually turned into flapping above the surface. Yeah. Real quick, I should point out that when you say sailing with their gills, that's another one of those things that sounds completely stupid to suggest. Yeah. But there are insects that do that. Yeah. The, it's <laughs> Basically, if there's an idea that sounds crazy and out there, some insect is probably doing it. Oh, yeah. Basically, for the future of this podcast, anytime we say... What a cool evolutionary innovation this was. Assume an insect did it first. And, and there's a, there's some insect sitting on its couch, you know, listening to this going, what the F, guys? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> this is some BS. You didn't even mention me. <laughs> He's, he just couldn't get that patent signed. <laughs> <laughs> you should have, you shouldn't have been microscopic. We just kept, we keep editing all of the insect designs. <laughs> Now, the last one is probably the most complex and has the most, as far as I was able to find, the most support or direct hmm. support for it. And it's the indite and excite hypothesis. Now, indites and excites are basically leg segments or leg-like structures on the inside and outside of the body. Indites being inside, excites being outside. And they're kind of just these, like, just lateral limb segment things i'm not sure what their function was supposed to be or is in any modern insects mm -hmm. but they're a fairly common thing the idea here is that those eventually developed and fused to form the wings the nice thing about this is it answers why they would have had musculature because they were already limb-like structures mm -hmm. and the biggest reason that this is a a uh, strong hypothesis is that in studying fruit flies, which are one of the most 
common case study animals for any genetic study because they yeah. are they're one of the first ones we sequence the genome of and they are very simple to manipulate and study. I believe they were the ones that the Hox genes were discovered in and Yeah, I think so. All that good stuff. It's you, genetic and, and developmental studies go real well when your uh species has a generation time of a a number of days. <laughs> exactly. So you can really watch things change. Yeah. In studying fruit flies, a mutation was observed that transformed the costal or leading edge region of the wing into a three-jointed non-functioning. It didn't have like the foot tip, but a three-jointed limb. Uh-huh. And the rest of the wing was basically just left there, kind of shriveled. Interesting. And so if that is what happened, a number of these you know, indites and excites fused to create the wing. And so far we've seen at least some evidence of it in the reverse. Interesting. Yeah. In Insects are an interesting one because the pressures that are required to get you into the sky seem much different for insects. Like mm-hmm. it, it's much more easy. It's much easier to imagine insects ending up in situations where they would be moving through the air, falling out of trees or whatever, because if you're an insect, you know, if you're a, a a vertebrate, you can't just jump out of a tree and expect to survive. Yeah. But you can if you're an insect. Yeah, there's there's tons of insects that that is their defense. Is yeah. If something scares me, I just let go of whatever I'm on, and I will fall to the ground faster than it can chase me, and then I run away. <laughs> yeah. So this notion of co-opting some things you already had seems much more intuitive for for tiny tiny animals like insects than it does for the other animals and it's easier to move your body weight like it just it's a it's a it's a very different world it really is and on that note of it being very different we can kind of use this to uh, begin to wrap up insects kind of stand aside from the other three flyers for another reason now while with birds being the only archosaur group to have developed fight, flight, and ma- bats being the only mammalian group to develop flight, there are very few groups of insects that don't fly. Yes. <laughs> Most groups of insects either had flight and lost it or fly today. And yeah. it is now the common. So insects, as we were talking about earlier, saw flight and asked the question of, so why don't we all just fly? And then just did it. <laughs> yeah. And that's absolutely, yeah. It, there are flightless insects that have yeah. lost flight for the same reasons as birds have. Yeah. But no, it's non-flying insects are few and far between. And the first few that come to mind start off not flying. Yes. <laughs> like caterpillars just haven't gotten there yet. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like there's very few groups that in their lineage never developed flight. Yeah, there's only a cup, only a few, and everyone else has it or had it and gave it up. So they are, by and that's once again, insects are by far one of the most, if not the most, successful of all animal groups. Oh yeah, and it's almost indefinitely part to the fact that they can all fly. That's the reason why so few other animals than insects can swarm. Yeah. <laughs> like oh, the man. ability to move in a mass, you know, in a coordination through three degrees of movement is impressive. Yes, it is. 
Well, that is basically all we have to talk about for this episode. We don't have a nice conclusion subject because this one was really covering a whole bunch of potential subjects. Yeah, it's hard to talk about the subject of flight without getting into here's seven more avenues that you wish we had time to talk more about. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, this this one is such a diverse thing. You know, that's that's there's a reason why there can be standalone aerospace museums is <laughs> yeah. the ability of being able to get up in the air is a fascinating and awe-inspiring thing to do. And the fact that four different groups of animals did it and all did it slightly differently is really, really interesting. Yeah. So if you're listening and, and you want to hear more about one of these particular groups or one of these particular topics, let us know. Yeah. Uh, we, ever since the last, uh, especially over the last few episodes, we've gotten a lot more interaction. People have been tweeting yes. at us, commenting, sending us messages. And we've gotten a handful of... Yeah, we've gotten a handful of requests, which is mm -hmm. really cool. So expect to see some requests coming up soon. Absolutely. Th this is a general reminder that, you know, we can look at download numbers and we can look at likes and stuff. But, y you know, the interaction with the fans is really the best metric that we have uh, to tell us what you guys are liking. Talk to us. So, We're here for you. Yes, we are. <laughs> Send us questions, send us requests, leave us reviews, tell your friends about us, whatever you want to do, uh, and we will be back next time for our next episode. Absolutely. Thanks again for listening, everyone. See ya. Fly away. Fly, 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 fly. little bird. Fly, fly. Fly, fly. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. For more from us, you can follow us on the Common Descent Podcast Twitter account, Facebook page, or on our WordPress blog, where we post additional cool stuff for each episode. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome. You can find this and other video game remix music at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope to see you next time.